All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck Tuckians? I don't know why I'm focusing on you. How's it going? What's happening out there? The paperback of Waiting for the Punch is now available in stores, folks. Or you can go to markmarinbook.com and order a copy from wherever you like to order books. Also, the Across the Divide event. The Across the Great Divide event is tomorrow night, Friday the 19th. I'm, I'm going down to the Ace Hotel. I'm hosting the thing. I got to get that together, the hosting, the, what kind of funnies do I want to make. Then I got to bring up all the acts, including Bob Weir, Lucinda Williams, John Prine, Jimmy Vavino's the musical director. He's cajoled me, talked me into uh, playing a song that I played with him before, but Slash is going to be uh, sitting in on that song as well. I discussed this with you before. I'm going in. I'm going full throttle. I practiced a bit. I know I got this problem with my arm and my fingers, my other hand, my picking hand. The nail is uh, seems to be uh, not falling off. I can hold a prick. A prick? Woof. Let's not assess that too deeply. I can hold a pick pretty well pretty well uh you know i I got the strength back in it so i'm gonna go in i'm gonna do it but boy did i have a waffling i just was waffling confidence wise yeah all day yesterday you know when you get that slight sinking feeling you know a slight heaviness in the heart maybe your stomach feels a little pulled upon a, a mild kind of tinge of the depression that just makes you feel like you're not good enough to do anything yeah, I had that for a few hours. And then I just leaned into the guitar and I'm just sort of like, get it out, get it out, man. Worked on my stand-up a bit. Yeah, I have a, I have a bit of a, that's where it came from. You know, like I can't just admit that like, hey, man, I'm a, I'm a little nervous about this shit coming up. I'm a little scared. You know, I got to play guitar with Slash. I got to host a big event with uh, some uh, big musical acts, which... Yeah, you know, uh, should be fun, but I'm just sort of like, ah, oh, fuck, what am I going to do? And then I've got, I'm going to New York to shoot the Joker movie with uh, De Niro and Joaquin with that scene. And I'm like, oh my God, that should be, uh, but I'm, I'm excited about it. But I have to assume that somewhere under the excitement and the, the actual feeling of uh, groundedness around this stuff, there exists the ever flowing wellspring of fear and insecurity that uh, I keep underground. It's a um, subterranean well. I put some concrete over the hole that it used to flow through into my being. But every once in a while, you know, it, it just it, there'll be a little fissure. There'll be a fissure, and then it starts seeping out. The just like this, the the fluid. You know, you can't do this. You're not going to pull it off. Don't pretend like you're you can handle this. You you suck. Just a little, just kind of oozing out of this fissure. I'm excited, is what I'm trying to say. I can't wait to do the stuff I have ahead of me. You know, things are tough in the world. My world is okay. I got some opportunities. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be fun, right? I don't know, man. It's like, you know, you're going you're gonna to pull it off? or like, I don't know. God damn it. Don't talk to me like that. Today on the show, I talked to character actor Richard E. Grant. You know him from a lot of things. Famously, Whitnail and I, and, uh, and those were the early movies, How to Get Ahead in Advertising, but he was in, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula. He was in, he's been, you know, he's been the player. He's been in a lot of stuff. 
But uh, he's here to talk about this movie, Can You Ever Forgive Me, with Melissa McCarthy, which I thought was very good. Melissa's doing a serious role. It's uh, based on a true story about forgery and desperation. And I enjoyed it. But I was fascinated to talk to Richard E. Grant because he's one of these guys that he's always very intense and slightly morally dubious in movies and He's got quite a presence, so you, I didn't know what you know. I, I you know I didn't know what kind of person he was. Are you know, is he going to you know just tumble in here like Richard Burton after a bender? No, quite the opposite. Great talk, though. Enjoy talking to him. Brian Posehn is uh, here as well for uh, uh, our last, I believe, our last shorty, as I call him. Brian Posehn doesn't know it, but he's the last of the short form interviews that we do occasionally here. What can I tell you about Brian Posehn? I've known him since he was a youngster, it seems. We started out sort of together years ago. I remember him when he started. He's got this uh, memoir coming out, Forever Nerdy, My Dorky Dreams and Staying Metal. That uh, comes out next week, actually, October 23rd. You can pre-order it right now. And we had this talk uh, uh, over the summer uh, when we were still doing these shorter interviews. And we held it until we were closer to uh, the book coming out. And uh, it was fun, and it was it was good. It, 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 Brian's an evolving guy. I've known him a long time, so it was a, a great little uh, reconnect. So this is me and Brian Posehn. How are you feeling? So your 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 wife told you to get rid of all the things on the phone. Well, yeah, because it was driving me crazy, and uh, like it was affecting your life. You couldn't yeah, get out of the phone. It, uh, I'd just wake up angry and sad, and, yeah. and that would be the first thing I'd go to, and then to reinforce whatever it. I read yeah, would set me <laughs> off in that direction, and if it, if it was a positive thing, yeah. then I would like lay all my, you know, oh, that's going to happen now. Yeah. He's, he's out of here. He's yeah. gone. Yeah. And, oh, no, and no, it doesn't fucking happen. nothing. Right. And then I'd get mad. And, right. Like, but I started off the election uh, um, on that, like, on that... Uh, just kind of not believing that it was even happening right, that, sure. the night that it happened. Yeah. Uh, once it started to turn around they, yeah. and go the other way, I went to bed. I went to bed around 10 o'clock. Right. And I was just pissed off. And right. my poor kid uh, could sense my energy. Yeah. Because I can't really hide things. How old is he then? He, uh, he was seven then. Yeah. And uh, like he drew a picture of Trump, and, like the bird shitting on him, and, oh, man. It, like to try to make me happy. Yeah. But it was already over for me. I was yeah. just like, I can't believe this is. Yeah, I'm gonna go try to sleep. Right. And then the last two years have just been. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, writing the book, but then, and I talk about at the end of the book uh, how hard it was to write while I was that pissed off and that worried and that sad and you know just going highs and lows right and writing about you know my life yeah with trying the to highs reflect and lows. on these things while i'm you right. know also <laughs> self-medicating with whiskey and weed and you know <laughs> yeah the, the, trying those... not to kill my family and yeah <laughs> what do you do you're back on the weed and whiskey yeah <laughs> yeah it works yeah <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it, take the, it, it took the edge off, huh? Right. And so everything was falling apart, and then yeah. you had to go back into the childhood. But did that, was there, was there the, the book is called uh, 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 Forever Nerdy, Living My Dorky Dreams and Staying Metal. Yeah. Like, I find that when I write, I hate it primarily. Uh-huh. And that, like, when the last book I did on my own, like, it was a real chore, and, and it's time-consuming, and it hangs over you, and, it, like, you know, even if I'm writing about myself, it's sort of like, oh, but I still got to write it. Yeah. But there are those moments where you go on these runs where there's a, a sense of discovery, 
and you frame, you know, all of a sudden you see things that you in a way that you didn't see them before. Right. Did you have that experience? There were a couple of things. There were a couple of things of uh, stuff where, and I even talk about it in the book where I'm like, oh, my mom was a virgin when she met my dad? That's weird. Ew. Like, <laughs> like I kind of put things together, like, <laughs> yeah. but I'd never thought, you know, like. As a grown-up. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, you, there's still so much of your mind is because of your parents is locked in child mind. Right. And you yeah. refuse to see and them. I'm just kind of going through the whole thing, and I'm like, oh, I don't think she, yeah. And then, and then the mom's boyfriend after that, and I was like, "Oh, she's really only had these three guys." What? Stop thinking about that. <laughs> you had to reel it that in. That was one of the things. You're seeing your mom too much as a person. Yeah, and I was also I felt bad for her because I was because I don't have a dad, so pretty much everything in the book is kind of blamed on her. Right. And then she moved down here during she moved down here last November, so I was finishing this up, and. I'm forced to be around her all the yeah. time when I'm writing about her. Right. And I felt like guilty, but like there's so much of that shit already in the book. Of, yeah. You know. Did you put that in there that you're feeling that that she came That was down? already in there. No, no. Uh I barely talk about that. Yeah. I mentioned, but Well, what did you but it made it harder cuz I'd see her right. and I'd just written about something about how pissed off I was about this shitty thing she said 30 years ago or right. whatever that yeah. still is stuck in my brain. Like what? Oh, just, you know, stuff about the dad kind of, you know, when I would when I would say to her or when I was a teen, you know, and I thought maybe the situation would have been better if my dad had lived, she'd say stuff like, you know, he wasn't that into the idea of you. You know, when you were born, he wasn't pro-Brian and... <laughs> And By he's not way. that great of a dude. And just like she would just throw him under the bus and it just made me hate her too. It's, you know? she, and, I, it's and, weird though, in her twisted mind, she was probably trying to help. Like yeah. to, to sort of like, you know, you know, uh, and the guy, yeah, how, like, how did he die again? Uh, he died of uh, um, blood, uh, a rare blood disease. Right. And um, uh, they, uh, negligence at the hospital. And my mom didn't do anything about it, but. What did she? But did she know? You're still. You haven't resolved this stuff. You're supposed to maybe process this stuff. With the, I didn't with think we were going to get this deep this quick. But, <laughs> but I mean, what you forgot who you were talking to? The. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we but, were just on your porch. You tricked yeah, porch. me into this. We were just you. Were, we're showing you my plans. You with the cigar. We were yeah. looking at shit, and then now, <laughs> boom, mom. Yeah. Well, no, but like, uh, but were you? Did you find? Well, it is a memoir, and and I have yeah. experience with that, and I also have experience with alienating a parent because of what I wrote. Oh, she's gonna flip. Yeah, but do do you? But like, I turn it around because we our relationship is mostly positive now. So yeah. I. I and I, she was super um, supportive of comedy. Yeah, and that's the one thing. And I, I make a big point of that in the book of going, look, the high school years were rough. Right. But once I found this thing that I loved, she realized that you know, even though she didn't think it was awesome, she right? Didn't, she didn't laugh at what I was doing, but she, but she thought you know saw that I loved it and saw that I had some sort of skill with it, you know, and also that you were probably out among people, right? Yeah, not down in the basement with a bunch of right. nerds playing a game, or right, 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 right. <laughs> like he seems to be out in the world, yes. And that must have been the thank God oh, for sure. <laughs> so the so you go all the way back, you know, uh, you do the whole thing. I 
wasn't going to yeah. when I was going to write when I started. Had, uh, why'd you I do it? What idea. was the, what, Did you? It was your idea, or did somebody say like, "Why don't you write a book?" Uh, yeah, I'd had um, I had written some blurbs for other uh, some friends of ours. Uh, I didn't do it wasn't Stanhope, but it was the same editor that's yeah. worked with Stanhope, uh -huh. and um, I'd done uh, a blurb for Rex Brown's book. He's yeah. uh, the bass player for Pantera, and then I'd done one for uh, one of Scott Ian's. Oh you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, and. Um, Nice guy. So that editor said, hey, man, if you have a book in you, we'd love to hear it because he liked what I had written just in the blurbs. He's oh, right. like, you clearly can write. You got to like, break through blurbs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. And then uh, instead of going through my agency and, and having them shop it, when I came up with the concept, I just went to this guy. I said, look, you know, you've done metal and comedy. Yeah. And this is, you know. That's me. That's me. So <laughs> yeah. do you want to hear it? He loved it. And then we just went. It's through DeCapo, and it was oh, easy instead of getting my, you know, my agent got involved then. Yeah. Once I had sold it on my own. Right. Oh, that's great. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's what they that do. That was kind hey. of the way I wanted to do yeah. it, though. But, but I didn't mind. Right. I didn't mind because I didn't want to go through the other process of them trying to take me around all these Bidding places. Bidding wars and that kind and of thing. That, well, there wouldn't been. Is, right. In my head, everybody was going to go, nah, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to go those. through that, yeah. that kick in the nuts. So they I'd just, rather go to somebody who, you know, was into it. Was into it. And they just came in to negotiate. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's and then take their ten. Yeah. Right. We're here. We're uh, so you got everything done. Great. <laughs> right. we'll, we'll we'll put the paperwork together. Right. And you, Which is fine. Yeah. No. That's, that's what they what do. What I wanted. Yeah. No. I'm, I'm not criticizing right, right. them. That's yeah, the way the yeah, business is structured right. because we don't know how to handle money. No. No. <laughs> so it originally started as kind of I was just going to do blurb? essays. No, I was going <laughs> to do essays right. about my life. That's what I did. Yeah. The last. But one. then and then I just when I started writing about the first ten years. Because I talk about nerdiness, but I also, and I've talked about it in my act, how I think, you know, you know you're not born a nerd. You right. find it, you know, you might be born with like OCD. Right. Which, you know, Leads plays into it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, to me, you know, it started at 10 years old, but then I talk about those first 10 years and I talk about, you know, the the darkness sure. and the death and, and that yeah. kind of stuff. And and, and what, what was your original... Obsession to start to start defining the first the nerd. one I say in the book is Jaws, and then and then the first bit after that was Star Wars, and right. that like that was it. Jaws was paled by how how massively <laughs> I got into Star Wars and how obsessed I got, and then Kiss was right around the same time. It was Kiss and Star oh, Wars were a, my first two things. That's a pretty good trifecta. Jaws to start. You know, yeah. and then boom, the machine. And the all shark. within seventy six, seventy seven, within like two years, that you know, I was. And you're able to track it to like, you know, handling grief and the sadness and the isolation of the dad thing and of being awkward in general. It's mm -hmm. almost like a nerdism uh, is almost like it can be a, like a religion. Yeah, because like you know, you find these things that you know define you and are, are massive right. and you can sort of turn your life over to them well i even say yeah i say in the book that uh to me nerdiness is just about obsession and i even think religion is they're just jesus nerds no <laughs> and their cosplaying is <laughs> a little point. more dangerous <laughs> yeah, yeah in yeah. general yeah. The, the cultural implications <laughs> of christian cosplay could end the world <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah no that, i think that's true i i thought i thought that about um 
you know, just ritualistic religions like, you know, Orthodox Jews, you know, uh, Muslims, Catholics that, you know, there's that the idea of all these arcane rituals is is an OCD. It's an organized Mm -hmm. method to sort of keep you connected to this thing and you get and you have to do it. Right. And it's funny. I even talk about I was Christian until I kind of around. It's not like I left Christianity. Yeah. Went, now I'm into Star Wars instead. Yeah. But it kind of happened around the same time. Well, yeah. But and where a, I got more into metal and I got, you know, when people were shitting on Kiss and stuff, I, I was like, Kiss is not Knights in Satan's service. It's. Yeah. Right. Oh, right. Oh, when two the Jewish guys and an Italian <laughs> dude and another guy, in, whatever yeah, Fraley is. In, in clown makeup. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I think that's true because, like, for, for kids, certainly, and, and I think it happens now too with. Uh, with uh with gaming and stuff it's like it's it's present it's accessible it's engaged and it's it's now right you know what i mean it's not like some sort of hypothetical it's like i see luke skywalker <laughs> you know right right yeah so 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 that's where it started and 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 then like you kind of move through the life yeah and then comedy finding you know it's about all the different obsessions i i touched were you a D guy too I wasn't at first, and I talk about that. So in junior high, I heard about it, and I was like, oh, this seems like something I would love. But there was already a kid that I hated at Sunday school. (laughs) He was like the Christian bully, which is so weird. Like he would would fuck with me. It kind of was, because he was the one guy that was like that. I felt like at Christian camp and at... Sunday school and a church group and all those places, I felt pretty safe. Yeah. Except for this one dude. Yeah. And uh, and then I showed up at D&D and he sees me. I walk into the room, you know, it's D&D club in right. eighth, seventh grade. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be my place. I open the door. He sees me and goes, Posein, what are you doing here? And I'm like, oh, man, I can't even be into this. <laughs> and then I just went to the library, and I talk about that in the book. I, wor- I worked in the library uh, in junior high and high school. And that and guy is now a congressman. Probably. <laughs> He's a Facebook friend, and I try to. Oh, is he? He Do asked you... me. Yeah, oh. yeah. <laughs> so you guys are all right? I changed his name in the book. Oh, no, good. No. You got it. Well, there's right. a lot of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you have to. Yeah. yeah. So you don't get in trouble, and you can right. just write about it. Right. But so that guy was sort of the bane of your existence? For Well... At church camp, well, yeah, at Sunday school, there was plenty of dicks at, at high school and junior high. But yeah. Then, yeah. And isn't that like sort of the thrust of the story is that, you know, how you, you know, were were isolated because of things that were sort of out of your control, mm-hmm. you know, and you had to sort of uh, cloister with the other freaks. Right. And then like, you know, at some point, you know, because there was a shift in culture, you were able to own it. Yeah. Well, I talk about that. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, cause and that, how I'm not bitter about it either. There's because there's a ton of bitter nerds that are like, "Hey, I didn't have the, the there weren't hot girls wearing the I Heart Nerds shirt," and I'm right, like, "Well, yeah. it is what it is," and and I it worked out for me. I'm not mad about the girls that didn't fuck me still. <laughs> it's just, you're just mad about your mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you go to the source. for making me unfuckable. <laughs> It's her fault. <laughs> yeah, that one is all her fault. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah. all her fault. Yeah, so I mean, but I remember, like, and we talked about this the first time we talked. I mean, there was, I remember the shift. Like, it's weird because when I see guys do it now, I think they're they're kind of late. I don't want to mention anyone's name. But I remember, like, you shifting from like, long hair, metal dude 
to like guy wearing glasses, you know, with the good haircut and beard thing. Like I, it was a very distinct shift. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's well, like, it didn't happen. It wasn't like I went, I'm going to be this guy. No, uh, no, no. The, I know. The, the hair was the girlfriend at the time uh, and her friend. Uh, what do you what do you call it when people gang up on you? Uh, an intervention. They oh, yeah. they showed up and yeah. said, "You're cutting your hair today, and we're taking you to a different clothing store, and you're going to turn this shit around." Because all you wore were t-shirts, yeah, and a hat well, sometimes, yeah, pretty much, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I looked like I still worked at a skateboard shop, which was my last day job. Well, record store was my <laughs> right. last day job. But right, my last two day jobs, were, right. You know, skateboards and record stores. So. But it was right around like the like the Mister Show time. Yeah, where you know you're sort of like, oh, that's look at Brian. He's all well, cleaned yeah, up. and it was also like David Cross looks good with a bald head. <laughs> yeah. I, I should just do what he's doing. <laughs> I think maybe I co-opted the beard from Louie, or oh uh, yeah, maybe I feel like there were other guys that were doing the the bald head beard, beard thing. thing. Yeah, you were, or at least because I experience I experimented with goatees. And yeah, I had I used to have the Pearl Jam thing for back when I knew you. Yeah, when I had long hair, but then I had just the yeah, just the flavor saver. Oh no, must. Stash. And I grew nothing. It just the flavor saver, and I grew it <laughs> yeah. long. Like what the fuck? Yeah, like like I weird I long. Was a stone Gossard. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You have that. Uh, you have to be defined by something. <laughs> but then talking about nerdiness came from also me wanting to be less brick road or, or brick, not brick road, brick brick wall. Yeah, which is what I had kind of been lumped in. Like I was finding uh, in the alternative scene in L.A where I would show up at some of those shows and they'd go, no, you know, you're, oh, you're an improv guy. You're a mainstream comic. Yeah, there, I won't name some people, but there's people that ran some of those rooms that were like, nope, nope. nope really? We, yeah, Patton fits, this other guy fits, but you don't fit. But we all started. And so then. I've, me, you, Blaine, yeah. we all started in, We most of the people most that. Most of us were brick wall comics of course, before was, we found that, you know. That was because that was all there was then. Yeah, and Patton had a suit in his first, you know. Oh, yeah. His first eight by 10. You know, we did all those that things. Little, that alley yeah, shot. No, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, we yeah. did those things. We had business cards and eight by 10s. Like yeah, because we. All the comics in the 80s did. And right, because we came in a little yeah. earlier. Yeah. Like we were all like probably you know middles or headliners by the time all comedy started. Right. But you've been writing for a long time. I remember because like I was a bitter cunt then, <laughs> you know. Like as I, when I saw Mister Show, I'm like, what the fuck? You know, what are the all these guys who just get the TV show, and you're on there? I'm like, Posehn's on there. How is this happening? I got that gig, I think, because. Bob loved that I didn't give a fuck. Yeah, like Bob and I met one time. I we he knew who I was and I knew he who he was through David. I knew David first. Cross mm. was coming up to San Francisco a lot. Yeah, before I moved down here, and so when I moved down here, they'd already done um, Stiller and that. Had, right, you know. Yeah, and, and so they were like looking for the next thing, and they were starting to write sketches together, and yeah. they were friends. And then I met at that old Virgin Mega Store. Yeah. And uh, I was wearing a, a sub pop jacket that said loser on it. And yeah. I just moved here. I was yeah. living with Dave Rath and I uh, was working at MTV. Uh, yeah, I remember that house. And I see uh, Odenkirk and Odenkirk sees me. And I should have been like, hey, man, how are you doing? He's like, he comes up to me. He goes, you're Brian Passane, right? And I go, yeah. And I'm just kind of a dick. <laughs> yeah. And then he walked away from that going across like, hey, is there something wrong with that guy? <laughs> <laughs> Cross is like he's funny enough, yeah. and then I think Bob was like, eh, "Maybe we're kind of the same guy because we can't really talk to people or want to." Right? <laughs> so, and that's how it happened, pretty much. 
And then, you know, they, they said, hey, do you want to write some sketches for this thing? And Yeah, it was great. And they had already put me in sketches by that point. Right. Because I fit like a type. They yeah. had like a grunge thing they wanted. So, yeah. You know, the, I already had the sub pop thing and they had to you know, yeah. put a hat on me and there we go. But I mean, part of the book is sort of like, you know, hanging on to the parts of that that you, you still love and define you. Right. And, and, and yet still, uh, you know, you don't, you, you don't have a choice. Right. Yeah. Like, you, you know, like even if you wanted to, to shift, there are just some things there's no way that you could let go, right? Uh, my therapist seems to think that I could let go of that. <laughs> but then you have to, as a grown person, right. you make these decisions where you're like, yeah, I don't, why are we trying right. to get rid of that? <laughs> no, no, that was a, you know, and I've made, I've made money off being the nerd or being yeah. the picked on guy. So, you know, but there was a point... 10 years ago in therapy where my therapist was like, you should let go of that. You're not that guy anymore. And I'm like, eh, I'm kind of making money doing it. But but do you think you are not that guy anymore? I guess you're not being well, picked I'm not. On. No, I'm not because I'm also, you know, I'm a little, I'm a little kid's uh, favorite person in the world. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so there are, there are things where this nine-year-old thinks I'm the coolest guy ever and the funniest guy <laughs> yeah. ever. And so there is confidence that comes with that. And, you know, and, and that's also a, that's a you service. Know, and having fans and sure. And knowing that, you know, I did connect with some people and, you know, but how does that evolve though? Like the, it I makes mean, you feel a little better about, you know, sure. Well, you're functioning adult. Right. And you, you know, and you, you know what your, your, your limitations and what your right. talents right. are. Right. But I mean, but it, you know, in, in, in writing the book, like, do you find that, like, okay, so you don't have to overplay it anymore, but you're still sitting around listening to metal. Right. And, you know, I'm sure you're, like, I don't know what your your game intake is or what you're telling your kids good and bad, you know, but I imagine a lot of that stuff is the same stuff. Oh, what I'm turning him on to? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just sort of like, you know, and, 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 and in terms of, you know, how you guys interact. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm, I'm... I don't have anything to go off of with the dad thing. So I just tried to be cool and yeah. just tried to be there for him and, and also, you know, be his friend. And yeah. when I get to the phase, you know, we're not at the phase yet where I, I'm going to have to be more stern or, right. you know, because he's, he's a good little guy now. He's but, nine? Yeah. Yeah. And, and what's I he keep into? waiting for, you know, 15. The turn? Yeah, the turn. Like, I like <laughs> Sublime, Dad. You're a dick. Because <laughs> that's going to be the one. Like Trump and Sublime would yeah. be the way to, <laughs> yeah, to I really. Think, I think that like you got a good chance it might not happen. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Does, is anyone going to give a fuck about Sublime by the time he's fourteen? <laughs> right, right. I mean, it'll be somebody else. But that's the way to rebel, right. in My house. So, um, what was the big takeaway from the book? Like, you know, when you were done writing it, outside of like that's a fucking relief. Uh, you know, what w did anything? Did anything sort of like come together for you? Well, I think there's a couple of things in there that uh, cause you had asked me on the porch about, you know, when we were talking about uh, the if the book's going to be out before the end of the world and, you know, <laughs> yeah. it reaching some nerd. I think I think some of the things that I say about bullying and and uh, and uh, my situation with that and and uh, and then also kind of embracing the nerdiness. Yeah. Uh, might ring true for well, some yeah, people. I think and, and, it does uh, have a big impact. Yeah. You know, like, and that's why, ultimately, like, that was the that's sort of- That's what I hope. Yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I- But I also wanted it to be funny and and have dumb things that people can, you know, picture coming out of my- And I'm going to do a, you know, a, a audio book, too, so- Oh, yeah, it's But great. I felt like as I was writing it, I was like, oh, this definitely feels like it's in my voice, and yeah. I kept getting that back from the editor. Oh, that's and that, great. that was the main thing, was like, 
have it be readable, have it be funny, yeah, have it be in my voice, and then and honest, yeah, yeah. And I think that's great because like that—that's the weird thing with the way this stuff works. Even like the podcast and stuff is that you know there's a lot of people out there that are isolated that don't talk to people much that don't like that have similar issues that we do and when they just like if they can just hear someone else talking about it it's like it's it it makes so much difference to yeah. know that you're not fucking alone in the world right 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 i never really understood it you know because there part of part of me just kind of likes being alone in the world you know right well and there was a point where people would go hey if you can get a pretty girl then i can and i was like well fuck you and then i'm like oh wait no no yeah you're right that is cool <laughs> sure. that i proved to you that <laughs> that you could get a pretty but also girl. fuck you <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i wish you the best of luck with it man thanks buddy it's thanks great. for having me hey it's great seeing you it's always great seeing you seriously He's the real deal, folks. Brian Posehn, the memoir Forever Nerdy, My Dorky Dreams and Staying Metal comes out next week, October 23rd. It'll be funny. And those of you who relate to that stuff, it's about you. You can pre-order it right now. Uh, oh, I remember what I wanted to tell you about. I had a, uh, a, a humbling experience. But last night I decided to go to a party I was invited to. I didn't really know why I was invited. It was a charity uh, event kind of it was at a home it was an evite from uh, kathleen hannah and adam horovitz the you know kathleen hannah from uh, bikini kill and uh, adam from the beastie boys i i have not i've never met uh either of them um but i figured well they must uh they must want to meet me they must want to have me over they must uh that's exciting because i'd like to talk to both of them and it would be fun to meet them and uh and I'm glad that uh, my reputation precedes me. And so it was an event at their home for an organization called uh, Peace Sisters, uh, peacesisters.org. It's uh, about uh, you know, raising money to uh, pay for the education of girls in Togo in Africa. But, you know, so I made a donation through the Evite. And, uh, you know, I, I was pretty sure I'd see people I knew there. But I was thrilled that uh, that they knew who I was and that uh, they're having me their house. So. You know, we get there and uh, we walk in and, you know, Kathleen comes to the door and, she, and I, I say, hi, Mark Marin, and it didn't seem to register that much. And I said, you know, I just talked to Joan Jett. She had nice things to say about you. And she's like, oh, yeah, you talked to Joan? I'm like, yeah, I did on my podcast. She's like, oh, you have a podcast. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. Um, she goes, yeah, I'm just I'm just starting to get into podcasts. And, and part of the event was that she's making T-shirts of people having artists do t-shirts to sell with all the proceeds going to the charities so there's a small t-shirt shop in the in the um in the in the house there and she was wearing a hari kondabolu shirt which is a uh, an esoteric shirt but you know, m many of you may know hari he's a comic and i saw a w kamau bell shirt and i'm like oh i know hari and yeah i see kamau i know them uh, yeah they're uh you know they're comics i'm a comic she's like oh you do comedy too and i'm like yeah yeah i do i do do comedy i have a podcast and then I realized that uh, she didn't know me at all. Uh, n no idea who I was or what I did. And that, you know, I mean, after a certain point in this game, you know, you think you reach a certain level, certainly with a certain uh, type of person that, you know, you'd be, you'd be known. Nope. And uh, Adam Horowitz, the same thing, uh, did not, um, did not, not really seem to know who I was. So I'm like, why am I at their house? Why, how did this happen? 
But I saw Fred Armisen there and uh, Carrie uh, Brownstein and Jackie Tone was there. And uh, I saw some of the guys from SNL, Paul Ross. So I, I saw a lot of people I knew. And Sarah, the painter, saw a lot of painters that she knew there. It was a nice event, and I learned about this cause, and it was very moving. The woman who started it was there, and Kathleen is uh, involved in it. But there, there was sort of that, uh, you know, all the way through, that kind of weird kind of like nag of like, why, why, who, why was I invited? These people don't even know me. And then I ran into the publicist who handles uh, They Might Be Giants, and apparently she, she recommended that I come. And, I, and I'm glad that I had that uh, uh, moment because I wouldn't have known why. And I, I do admit that I was a little, was a little humbled by the whole thing. By the, <laughs> is that wrong? I mean, if you were invited to a party and you weren't sure, you never met the people that were having the party, but you were invited, and then you got there and they didn't know you, wouldn't you be like, oh, that kind of stings a little? Well, it did. All right. But it was nice to meet everybody, and, and hopefully I get to talk to the Beastie Boys and maybe Kathleen at some point. But right now, let's talk about Richard E. Grant. Now, you know this guy. If it's not ringing a bell, you know him. If you haven't seen the, uh, the sort of the classics, the uh, Whitnail and I or, or How to Get Ahead in Advertising, I mean, he's been in, you know, he's been in a lot of stuff. L.A. Story, The Player, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Age of Innocence. He was in, oh, Gosford Park. That was a big movie. He was great in that. What? He's just one of those guys you see around and you're like, oh, that guy. It's that guy. But apparently he was in Logan, too, which I didn't see. And uh, he's in the upcoming Star Wars, from what I understand. That's what he told me. But anyways, his new film... Can You Ever Forgive Me with Melissa McCarthy. It opens in select theaters tomorrow, October 19th. And it's good. It's good. This is me talking to Richard E. Grant. Old houses are nice. Do you have an old house? 1870. See, that's the thing. Where are you in London? Yeah. You know, London's got a lot more older stuff. Yeah. It does. <laughs> We're very excited here when something's lasted 100 years. Exactly. There you can live in a place that's four, five, <laughs> six hundred years old. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know. We can't even make it through 200 years in this country. Why? I don't know. It's it's going downhill, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> How are things in England? Oh, they're, they're exactly the same. You know, it's a, it's a shit show wherever you go. And uh, I was reading Roman diaries from ancient Rome. Oh, good. And, you know, Plautus and all those guys, they were just saying, it's, you know, it's the end of the world. It's oh, all, everything's gone down the pan. Uh-huh. So I think it's just, you know, it's the nature of stuff. You know, I speak to people who lived through the Second World War and they say, you know, compared to what they went through, right. you know, this is, we're living in jam and honey. Yeah. I, I, Milk and honey. It's right. I, when I've talked to the few people that I've talked to from uh, from the UK, you know, the older guys, yeah, you know, McKellen and uh, and Patrick Stewart and people, they're like, I, you, I remember bombs. Yeah, you know, they were they were, you know, we were in tunnels. Exactly. And so uh, the fact that we don't have them now, you think, well, you know, that's an improvement. <laughs> I guess so. But it's it's this it's the uh, the very proficient and uh, and uh, focused psychological warfare that's uh, that's uh, damning right now. Yeah. Yeah. You just turn on any device, and uh, you're going to just shatter your brain's ability to function properly. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Do you stay away from them? Uh, I plunge into every single possible thing that I can. I'm in, in, information overload. Are you all the time? You know, is that, that, I don't know whether you do this, but 
uh, if you Wikipedia somebody mm-hmm. or you Google them beforehand, and then yeah. of course you think you know everything, and then of course you meet the person face to face, and all that stuff just goes out the window, and you go, "Oh, there's a human being that I'm talking to," and you look them in the eye. But yeah, you, know, yeah. you go on the subway or the tube or whatever it's, you know, whatever the train yeah. system it is, and the silhouette of our age seems to be everybody is their head is even when they're crossing pedestrian crossing, oh, glued yeah. to the to the you know. Yeah, they're getting hit by cars. That's the my cell phone. That's my biggest fear of being of walking down the sidewalk or crossing a street is some yeah. asshole is going to be looking at his phone, <laughs> like I do. But we sound doing- like these grumpy old guys, you know, Waldorf and Stadler. I know. I- right, 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 right. Right, but 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 <laughs> well, we're also old guys that have adapted. You know, my dad, yeah. I don't think has ever listened to one of my podcasts because he claims he can't make the jump to you know push a <laughs> an arrow on his screen. And how does that make you feel? Well, that's a long story. I've covered it fairly thoroughly. You're very angry. <laughs> not, not go- no, no, no. I, you know, it's, it, it is what it is. He is what he is. And, yeah. uh, you know, whatever damage he did, I, I've transcended some of it. Okay. Right? Yeah. Did you? Uh, yes. But, you know, what you've done is remarkable that you're here in your garage. Yes. And you've done it. So you've brought the world to you. I have. It was a. It, it was sort of a, a a bit of cosmic timing that finally worked out. Yeah. And just being, uh, yeah, it, yeah, having some sort of talent for it, you know, yeah. <laughs> that I didn't know. It was all born out of desperation, Richard. It was as, not as everything is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. But the Google thing or the Wikipedia thing you say is true because I, I do I do that often. Yeah. What's wor- I always do find that there's a person over there. Like I see you as a person. My yeah. assumptions about you after doing a bit of research, I don't like to do too much. Uh, but a lot of times, two things: Wikipedia can be way wrong. Yeah. Like wait, like there's just made up people in it. Yes. There's made up pasts, <laughs> and I learned early on that to make uh, you know, like I start if I start leading a guest into sort of like, so your dad was uh, the mm. army, huh? that's why, and they're like, yeah. no, no. I'm like, he was a play oh. dancer, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the human thing is all because I assumed like having watched your work for years that Thank you know uh, that you would come like tumbling in here like Richard Burton you know up all night <laughs> with a cigarette just reeking of alcohol I'll I don't go know. out and, and so that I can fulfill this fantasy of yours <laughs> no, but, but, but I don't know why I would think that but you know I mean some of the characters are a little gnarly yep. but uh, you're very you're clean you're showered yep. you're <laughs> allergic to alcohol all of that helps that must have been a rough thing to find out were you told that or was it a, an experience oh that? no I couldn't keep anything down and when I was 16 I went to the doctor and said, you know, I, I'm socially embarrassed because I, you know, I can't, you know, I can't hold hold alcohol. Yeah. And okay. in a macho culture that I grew up in, in this um, tiny country, this smallest country in the southern hemisphere, Swaziland, um, that was, you know, you were you persona non grata. You yes. needed a drink. Yeah. And he did a blood test and he said to me, you know, do you have Asian blood? And I said, not that I know of. Why are you asking that? He said, because you have no enzyme to process alcohol whatsoever. You can never, ever drink. It's completely toxic to you. So so you lucked out. You avoided the alcoholism trap. Yeah. He said, order a ginger ale and people will leave you alone. And I've done that ever since. Yeah. yeah. No smoking either? No. Really? I tried one, 1970. Oh, my God. You're like completely <laughs> not the guy that I've seen in movies. Yeah, but I like dope. Oh, good. Yeah. So you can smoke dope. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Swaziland, like I had to research that. I, I yeah. had to, I had to, because <laughs> I, I was sort of like, what am I going to talk to him about? It's like the size of Glendale. Is, is it really? Yeah. It's that small? Yeah, it's tiny. What years were you there? You were born there? I was born there because my father was the Minister of Education while it was still an English protectorate under the last gasp of the British Empire. And then they gained, regained their independence in 1968. Uh-huh. And we carried on living there, and uh, I went to school there because of my father's job. So he and still so, had the job yeah. even after the uh, – how does that work? So he worked for – is there an empire 
<laughs> he, he worked for the empire and then the empire was pulling back. Yeah, he worked for the British government. And yeah. then after independence, he was kept on as an honorary advisor because he was fluent in Siswati. So he stayed on and then he died there at the age of 51. So so they kept him there sort of like, just, you know, we're, we're not in power, but keep yeah. an eye on things. He's a token white guy. <laughs> Let us know <laughs> what they're up action. To. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and so we're, we're, what was the culture like? So how, how did that define you? Do you have siblings? Uh, I do, but I haven't seen him since my father's funeral about 100 years ago. And but you haven't seen I, your siblings since no. your father's what, funeral. What it essentially was was a hermetically sealed, uh, more English than English uh, colonial bubble that oh, I grew up. So, in. so you you didn't go beyond the fence. Not really, and it was characterized yeah. by the three Bs: booze, boredom, and bonking. Uh, yeah, bonking. Yeah, I think that word's no longer in operation. It's no longer. Okay, it's it gone. defines how old I am. What did that? Was that? Did that evolve into shagging? <laughs> yes, shagging, bonking, <laughs> bonking, stooping, stooping, yeah. whatever you were you call go, it. Go Yiddish meeting. <laughs> yeah, I think some of the the youngsters call it just hanging out now. Hanging out. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to hang out? Yeah. Uh, but all right, so you you weren't you didn't experience the the tension of apartheid. Was your was your father? You know, do you come from Dutch people? Do no, you? I come from very liberal, white, Caucasian, highly educated people. And Swaziland was essentially it. It was nicknamed the Switzerland of Africa because it was mountainous and it was between Marxist Mozambique on the one side, yeah, and fascist apartheid South Africa on the other. So they oh. they tread this neutral line. So all the South African political dissidents yeah. sent from the ANC sent their kids to school in Swaziland. So I went to school and did school plays with Nelson Mandela's daughters and stuff. So that gives you an idea that I had a very liberal, you know, essentially white middle class education. Well, that well, that's a gift, I think. I think so. Yeah, it sets you up for tolerance in the world and Wait. hope and idealism. Oh, those two, the last two are trouble, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've been beaten out yeah, of me they have, by they, real life. Tolerance is, uh, is something that, that I think that that is actually one of the interesting things about the uh, possible crumbling of liberal democracy is that was the hinge that a lot of people just couldn't handle that. What, yeah. It's necessary for democracy to work that you have to have tolerance and it's not and not necessarily you're not born with it no. you have to engage it you have to learn it yes like and now manners right and now that the, all these shameless tyrants and weirdos are taking over <laughs> people are like you mean we don't have to put up with this shit anymore <laughs> yes. and they couldn't be happier yeah exactly it's a fucking nightmare but yeah, that, let's agree. get back to you okay so you're in switzerland of africa yeah and what and about you where were you when I was younger, yeah. when, when it all went down, uh, well, when Kennedy was shot, I was uh, uh, two months old. Uh, I grew up in New Mexico, born in New Jersey. Most uh -huh. of the formative years, though, second grade through high school in New Mexico. That so was you, in, Frank Sinatra, Meryl Streep, and Bruce Willis. About what, Jersey? Yeah. Yeah, but I, I well, there's more. There's Springsteen. I mean, the list goes on. Jersey okay. Jersey produced a lot of people. Uh, I do feel genetically attached, but I am not, uh, I was more in New Mexico. And then I, w I was in Boston, L.A., New York. I got around chasing the So where do you feel that you belong? Where's your identity? The, the, where my brain goes when yeah. it seeks uh, comfort? Yeah. Um, probably New Mexico, I would think. Albuquerque. Yeah. Well, or just you know, northern New Mexico in general, the feel of the air and the, you know, that, you know, the the kind of, I, I, it's weird that, you know, the skies there, there yeah. there's something about, the, the thing that draws me back there is not my high school buddies or yeah. that my parents were so terrific. The it was geography. Just, yeah. 
How about you? The smell of it. Yeah, it's the exact same thing. But uh, with you, Swaziland. Yeah, but do you find that Breaking Bad has given Albuquerque a bad or a good reputation? Was that your experience of it? Well, anything that can bring money into that city, I yeah. think, is good. And if people want to take little tours to the dog house where the where the hot dogs were, and uh, you know, and, and here and there, I think I think it seems fine. I think that. The television, the studios that were built out there, and I guess the tax incentives mm-hmm. that people get for shooting helps the the economy. I mean, I don't know that Breaking Bad was. It, it's a fictitious story, but yeah. I, I do think that uh, the economy of New Mexico has its problems, and they do have a, I believe, a meth of amphetamine issue. Right. Well, but, what you're talking about is that is that landscape has this real homing pigeon instinct in you. I think it, yeah, it goes you, beyond your friends, your parents, whatever. You just oh yeah, you, you're drawn back to that. Well, there it is something like if if the landscape because I remember New Jersey too, but yeah. what I remember about it is sort of humidity, green tomatoes, like my grandmother's house. Yeah. But you know, if you're forming and you're in high school and there's some sort of, you know, whatever struggles you're going through as a conscious person, you know, if you find some, you know, if you find some sort of reprieve in the environment, and New Mexico is very beautiful, you know, it kind of it sits in the back of your head. As, as like I constantly think about moving back there. And has this increased as you've got into your later fifth, second half of your fifties? Um, well, I just hit the middle fifties. Right. I just hit fifty-five. Right. It's increased since I've had the freedom to make choices about my life. You know, before I earned a living, which was you know to up to forty-five years old, there was a bit of panic. But now I'm yeah. sort of like, wouldn't it be nice to just stop? Now you're living in the mansion in Glendale. You're living yeah. the dream. Yeah, I guess so. I, I'm just like, I, I don't have a wife. I don't have kids. I don't have much debt. So I'm like, what am I saving money for? Why have, why have you had so many wives? Two wives? Yeah. You did do your homework. Yeah. I just had two. Is yeah, that but, so many? I mean, well, that's quite a lot. And because they weren't long-lived ones. I mean, they weren't so long ones. No. Long uh, the first one, I think, was something I did out of uh, a, a, an attempt at uh, normalizing. Yeah. And the second one, I But you I was, feel abnormal. Well, I just feel like, you know, when you live the life of an entertainer, yeah. an actor, I would assume as well, where yeah. your security is, you know, dubious. Yeah. Yes. That, you know, and also I was a, a drinker and, you know, a little out of control. And, I, you know, I met a woman who was uh, familiar to me in, in uh, you know, the social structure, mm-hmm. you know, and I and I thought like, well, that, that'll shape me up. Right. Didn't. And then I fell in love with some other woman, and uh, I got sober. And I was uh, I was a crazy person sober, and uh, you know I alien- you know eventually drained her of her life force, and she <laughs> went away. <laughs> and who is who is currently re-energizing your life force? Well, I think I found a fairly non-dramatic, um, sort of a stable, grounded uh, woman who's a painter, abstract painter. So does that mean a, that you were addicted to people that created drama around you? before well i don't know like uh, it, i think that if you do the research mm-hmm. that um yeah you're going to you know whether you don't know so immediately you're going to the, the people you're most connected with are going to be what you come from have yeah. you found that yeah. yeah yeah but you didn't come from drama you didn't come from insanity oh yeah high high drama um, you know alcoholic father um drank himself to death basically unrequited love for my mother and he tried to shoot me when I was fifteen because he was because I emptied a crate of his scotch down the sink. Oh my god! And uh, you know all that stuff, but it's. But they were divorced. They were divorced, and I didn't realize that he was still in love with her. He told me on his deathbed that he'd never stopped loving her, and so in that moment, I understood the tragedy of his life. Oh my um, god! Yeah, it's weird the, the finite nature of it. Yeah. That that you you know it's not that long of a run and if yeah. you if you don't make some minor fixes yeah. you're gonna <laughs> <laughs> like what, what about your mom 
Oh, she's 87 and firing on all cylinders. Oh, really? Yeah. And she's a chipper? She's very chipper, yeah, because her second husband's not so chipper. But she is on, you know, she has great longevity in her genes and she reads, you know, eight books a week and she's she's on fire with stuff. So I'm very impressed by her. And I've had a rapprochement with her, which has been good for my mental health. Yeah. And all would, these things are important. So you were holding on to some darkness? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had a nervous breakdown. I was 42. And you, then- How and old then are you now? I am 62. So let's go back for a second. So yeah. you're, you're a kid- in uh, Swaziland, yeah, you've got a sibling that you don't talk about or talk to. Mm-hmm. Don't know what happened there. Well, uh, he's—I think he has—he has issues and problems. Oh, oh. sibling rivalry. You know, well, yeah, he, he, he perceives he's... me as the favorite child, and that's the narrative that he has in his head that I can't dislodge. And it's an aggressive narrative. It has, yes, it has been. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So these are just boundaries that you're just boundaries. Yeah, that you finally have to draw. Uh, yeah, 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 for your own safety. That's true. Yeah, and it's it's a painful thing when you have to do it with family. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> you know because they believe they have you know extraterrestrial rights over you, and you know they don't. No, is he older? Uh, two and a half years younger. Oh wow! Yeah, it's just it's the same thing. They hang on to it. It's hard to like. It's like your your sad father with the unrequited love. Yeah. You know, like if you lock into something and it feels. You know, deep enough. Yeah. No shaking it. Yeah, exactly. So your parents, how old were you when they got divorced? Uh, I was 11. And I woke up on the back seat of a car and inadvertently saw my mother shagging my father's best friend on the front seat. So oh. that, that sort of got me started diary writing. Because I couldn't tell anybody. You know, you're... you're, you're you knew that it this. was bad. I knew that I was seeing something that I shouldn't have seen. So, you just, yeah. And she just thought you were sleeping? And she, she was going to get away with she that? She thought I was sleeping, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. She didn't have too many choices about where she could do it. I know, but it, maybe it says something to uh, to her British nature that it would be quiet enough to <laughs> like, stifle it, you know, yeah. stifle the noises. And to add to the excitement. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we've discussed this and it's all been out in the open now. And it's, it's you know, it's at, 40, thing. at 42. Yeah. Well, at 44, I finally confronted her about it in, in a peaceful way, you know, at the, as a result of help from a psychoanalyst. And, you know, she said the three magic words, which I'm sure you will know the power of these, when she said, please forgive me. Oh, my God. And that was, you know, the power shift was instantaneous. And my mental health improved incrementally by the nanosecond, That's which a, is why I'm this happy, well-adjusted person, yeah, you know. Because you felt it. You like, you know, it yeah. wasn't, it was real. Yeah. Because she had probably real. been carrying it somewhere in, as well. Absolutely. Can you imagine carrying that? Knowing oh. that you, you have all that stuff. It's in, yeah, it's insane what we carry for a lifetime. Yeah, this seems to be the theme. Have, yeah, but have, are you are you uh, positive by nature or what, are, are you, you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> You're a curmudgeon. Yeah, I mean, like Lee Israel. Yeah, well, no, I'm not that much of a curmudgeon. Listeners, we're sitting in a dark cave yeah. in Glendale, <laughs> no. covered in cobwebs and misery. I'm not as much of, of a curmudgeon as Lee Israel in the film or or in person. Uh, and I watched it. I, I enjoyed it a lot, and we're going to talk about it. But I'm not. Okay. I'm not. I'm not through with my vetting. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so this diary business. Yeah. So you because you, you, you know I know you you hang on to that, but you still do it. I still do it because I think because of the country that I grew up in, the circumstances, there was no television, and the huge 
thrill of my childhood was yeah. uh, Neil Armstrong landing on the moon. On the on moon. The moon. Yeah. They're in making a movie about that, I think. Exactly. It's called First Man. And I saw that. I heard that on the on the wireless. It was yeah. then called in 1969 when I was 12 years old when you were still in you know, diapers. And Well, I was six. I, I, yeah. Okay, maybe I was in diapers. I had problems. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, Go problems. ahead. Yeah. And so it seemed as unlikely to say that you wanted to be an actor as it was to say, well, I'm going to be an astronaut. Yeah. So to... To have ended up traveling the world as I have done, meeting the people that I have done, sitting here opposite you. And, yeah, you know, this is a big one. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's a way of making it feel real. Yeah, the diary. Is. Yeah, it is. I, I think that's a, I think that's a, a good thing because I've never been able to stick with it, you know. Uh, but at 11, it was more Yeah, a, but you record everything. So you've got- I yeah, record a lot, but the, you know, the stuff that goes on your life. behind the face yeah. is really- <laughs> With the important stuff, yeah. What comes out of the face, you know. That so you're to... you're the the smiling clown. You're you're Ipeliachi because you're you're smiling at me now, but you're actually weeping in misery. Uh, not misery, but okay. uh, yeah. But I could weep pretty easily. Okay. <laughs> Could you? That comes with age. Oh yeah. Since having a child, I you know I can I don't don't even watch the news. It makes me weep. Yeah. And I mean that genuinely. No, no, I, 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 the sensitivity thing is, is yeah. kind of profound, but it happens in weird ways. I, I, don't, I don't get it from the news, but I can get it from moments on the street that yeah. seem hum, you know, painfully human. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, again, tolerance and the other that you have to learn, and another thing you have to learn is empathy. Yeah. I don't think we're naturally prone to that. No. We're selfish and, uh, monsters. Know, acts of selflessness or kindness or oh. tenderness yeah. and completely undo me because they're not the norm in my experience of life. Yeah, and how old were you when you had the child? Oh, I was, oh, she is 29. I can't do the math. I was 31. I oh, think. well, that's all right. Yeah. I mean, so, you, so you've had this crying problem for, you know, 25 years? Oh, t- yeah, 29 years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> since the day she was born, 1989. <laughs> yeah, since then. So this thing, uh, so but but it seems like the diary was more of a confessional thing. Like you know, you you needed to sort of account for the yeah. the the but the, the darkness you were carrying. Yeah, I tried religion. I don't know whether you tried that, but uh, you know, I got no answer. When how old were you when you tried religion? Uh, when I was eleven. Oh, and that was it. That you made one attempt at eleven, and you're well, like, well, I tried out. for about six months. And what did you try? I just got. I tried the. I tried the Bible and. Um, praying and all that you didn't come from a church family no and I got no answer my father said that heaven and hell is what you make of your own life it's the here and now be reassured that there is nothing beyond that when you die you go back to the unbeing of Mm. before you're born unbeing I kind of like that and I found that very reassuring yeah. To have that. So, and, um, and now you know, in retrospect, that your father lived in a hell yeah. until his deathbed. <laughs> like exactly. he, he chose hell, and you don't. And you don't <laughs> Living <know>. hell. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so keeping a diary was a way of, you know, I couldn't tell my friends. I certainly couldn't tell my parents. Yeah. So it was a way of, of making it that, that I didn't go nuts, that I thought this has happened. It's, and it's a recording of what's going on. That's It's fucking genius because – as you get older, yeah. I, I, I can't, like, I if you do a diary in the immediacy of, of it, if you do it every day, yeah. I would imagine that you can at least document the moment in your mind and in reality, because as I get older, I don't know what's happened and what hasn't and, and what yeah. really happened. And yeah. like, I've, I've lived in enough cities now and I'm 55, people walk up to me and they're like, hey man, you remember? I'm like, you're going to have to, <laughs> you know, me. yeah, you're going to have to give me a city, yeah. Yeah, a, a time period. Yeah. 
because <laughs> uh, I'm not clicking right now. No. So how do you get out of Swaziland? What, what's the what, how do you end up uh, an actor? Because I, I always make assumptions about the British actors like that. You're all hanging around the same lofty uh, kind of classically trained uh, Shakespearean model. Well, my, my no, that's not true. In my case, my father said. Um, your brain is too good to waste on trying to be an actor. There's no precedent in our family for doing that. So if you can find a university where you can do a theater training at the same time, yeah. do that. Right. So, so he I've, wanted you to be what? He wanted me to be a lawyer or a writer or a journalist or you know, something with a noble profession. Uh-huh. And uh, he, he genuinely thought that um, being an actor was a lifetime of wearing makeup tights and avoiding buggery. But it's interesting. Those were his concerns, not that like you would possibly not make a living or that it was oh, a was scary thing for you. Yeah, that, he, like, th- he also thought that I would be destitute. Yeah, right. Um, and I said, well, I didn't care about money. And he said, well, you can only say that because you're young, because you will need money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, so, this in, and this is in Swaziland. This is in Swaziland. So I found there was a local architect who told me that there was a drama training thing in Cape Town, um, which was 1,200 miles south of where I grew up. Yeah. And you could go and do a university degree there and then make an exception, according to your academia, of doing the theater diploma at the same time over four years. So that's what I did. In Cape Town? In Cape Town. I co-founded a theater company, and then I left there after two years and um, uh, emigrated to England. Well, what was the theater company? It was called the Troop Theater Company, and it was multiracial. And it was based at, um, at a theater called The Space in Cape Town. The space in Cape Town. What year is this? What are we talking? Like sixty? This is nineteen. I graduated nineteen seventy nine, and I worked in a theater company nineteen eighty, nineteen eighty one, and so, then emigrated. Okay, so like the world was very connected at, at that point. You weren't living in. You know, people got information not as quickly as we do now. So yeah. I'm just trying to figure out the tone. Was it like experimental theater? Were they confronting political? Uh, Everything was anti-apartheid. Right. Yeah. When did apartheid get lifted? It was in the uh, 80s? 1992. Wow, Nelson right. Mandela was released from prison. So so it was provocative, dangerous theater you were doing. That's what we were doing. But unfortunately, as you will know all too well, that if you are doing theater for a liberal middle class audience, mm-hmm. you know, you're preaching to the converted. Right. And that is the audience. Yeah, the theater the audience. has a hard time you know, bringing in the youngsters. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it costs it, too much. Well, I don't know what it is, but, you know, when you read about it, and I'm sure you have too, when you read about the, you know, the, uh, whether it's the, you know, the theater of cruelty or whatever yeah. was going on you know, with uh, Julian Beck, or you read about even the group theater mm-hmm. you know, with these noble sort of ideas of, uh, you know, bringing poetry and, yeah. and popular to the masses, there was still the old people that were shuffling in and <laughs> filling up half the house yeah. to see the new Odette's play. I, I don't think it, it ever, it, I think it's romanticized. I don't think it ever had the traction. No. I don't, maybe I'm wrong though in some theater. I think you're absolutely right. But you feel like you're doing something. You do. You feel like you're changing the world. Yeah. And, uh, and so do, do you feel personally that you had some effect on the decision to release Mandela from prison in the no, 90s? No, because I realized that after doing it for you know, and doing every political writer that we could lay our hands on and having uh, actors within the group write plays, yeah. um, we made not an ounce of difference. It counted on the most right-wing, extreme Africana apartheid people meeting the most extreme left-wing African National Congress people. Yeah. And they were the people that, you know, that's where it happened. Sure. but Nothing the, to do with the liberal minority. Right. But, like, I guess on some level, though, like, and I think this is probably more important, you know, in terms of looking at it historically. You did, you know, meet different people. You did engage in different points of view. Yeah. You did work with, you know, like I think that 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 sort of micro uh, uh, level of 
integrating and, yeah. and embracing and, and doing that kind of stuff doesn't mean nothing. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. So my education was an entire waste of time. <laughs> well, I, I, I have to believe that, right? You have to believe on some level that, you know, if you do good things and, you know, you take chances that, that you know, you don't know the butterfly effect. I mean, exactly. Jesus. So, but you, so you were, were you doing like, um, you know, all the regular kind of experimental weirdness, naked plays and, you know, uh, yelling we plays. And, we did we yeah. did all of those things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're out in the audience making them uncomfortable plays. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you never t- had any training. Theater Without Walls. No, we had training. You oh, you did? did? Three, three years of drama training. Yeah. And what kind of training was that? Uh, based on the Stanislavski method. And they used the curriculum of, uh, in a very colonial way, of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London as so you the got template of, oh. of what to do. So you had the Royal Academy template and then yeah. one guy who taught method. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. There's a sort of a smorgasbord of stuff. <laughs> so theater of cruelty, mime, restoration drama, you know, how to walk and talk. And there's also be bold enough to take all your clothes off and keep a conversation going at the same time and improvise. Shakespeare? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, lots of Shakespeare. I get a little obsessed with Shakespeare when I talk to British people. Why? Because I, I don't I don't have the love for it that I should. And you know, and Ian McKellen, Sir Ian McKellen sat there yeah. across from me in my old garage yeah. and did a monologue to my face. Wow. And I was like, Okay, I, I get it. I get it. Did you understand what he was saying? I did. Oh, that's great. Well, that's the tricky thing is like yeah. if you listen, you, it's still going to be difficult, but you'll get the hang of it. Yeah. But if you check out for a second, you know, you're oh, fucked. Yeah, yeah. You're fucked plot yeah. wise. You're yeah. fucked story. You know, like, be talking Mongolian. Yeah, I don't like exactly. it. Exactly. But do you find that you understand it? Um, because I grew up reading it. Yeah. And it was read to me. Um, it's something that's familiar. Yeah. But I perfectly understand that um, my daughter doesn't have that. Yeah. Same thing. I mean, she likes to go into the theater to see it, but I certainly didn't read Shakespeare to her. Does she want to go into show business? She is a casting director. Well, see, that's a reasonable job in show business. Yeah. 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 Have you had to go before her to audition for it? She has. She got me a job in a movie called The Nutcracker. (laughs) (laughs) Well, those connections really worked out for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she put me up for the job. That was your ticket. You didn't have to get it. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I'm counting on that for my old age. So, so you're loaded up with method Shakespeare and, and a, a, a sort of a unique racial tolerance, and you go back to Britain. Yeah, and what? And then what happens? Well, when I got there in 1982, Mrs. Thatcher um, was the then Prime Minister. She decided to invade these tiny the little islands called the Falklands of Argentina. Yeah, you know, to what effect? I have no idea. Does anyone know? Who knows? Yeah, I don't know. I think you know her, her polls were very, very low at that point. Sure, she yeah. was a great Churchillian follower, and I thought I think she thought this would be the way yeah. that would save her bacon. Yeah, right. And by, it did by having a generation of people going where. Yeah. That said, eighty-two, yes. Thatcher. Yeah. You're going and you want to make a difference in England now, right? Yeah. You're going to jump right into the provocative theater scene. Exactly. 25 years old. And then you find that all you can get is, you know, a job as a waiter in Covent Garden next to the Opera House. That's about as radical as you can get. So yeah. all those, you know, the ideology goes out the door. Because yeah. suddenly you don't, have, you don't have this big wall of apartheid to fight. Right. Because it's, you know, happening on another continent in a different hemisphere. But you do have the fight in in England, but for some reason those fights seem less pressing. Yeah, they do. Yeah, it, the fights. It, you know, the, the, when people were sort of getting hot under the collar about what Mrs. Thatcher was doing compared to the Labour Party, it seemed in relation to what the atrocities and inhumanity of the apartheid yeah. system, it seemed small. It seemed know. political. Yeah, it seemed political. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah, so you were a waiter, and you were like, what do I have to do to work? <laughs> yeah. Enough of this just, ideological- Exactly. Just get me a job. <laughs> and, wh- and what was the first big acting job? Oh, I got I did a lunch hour play, and then from that, I got an agent, and then you know started doing dribs and drabs. The, it's the, absolutely the classic route or route. What's for, a lunch, for well, a lunch hour play? Oh, you go- Oh, it's a soap opera? No, it's in a, in a uh, pub, in a bar. Really? That, yeah, at that point, you could do a play for an hour, and people used to take lunch hours, and uh, they and don't anymore. Um, they go to a pub to see they go some to see kids? A, and they'd see you know, some young actors perform. You know, they get some poor agent dragged in there to come you know, stuff their face with a sandwich and see you act, and then give you become an, you know, represent you as an agent. And then so that's st- how it got started. And so then you started doing TV work, or what? No, I'm doing theater work. Oh, it was all theater work? Yeah, all theater work. And then I got one TV job. In 1985, followed by nine months of unemployment. And the job was with an improvised thing for the BBC with Gary Oldman, of all people. And then when it came out, the day after it came out, a year later, um, I got a new agent and cast (laughs) in a film called With Nell and I because Daniel Day-Lewis had turned down the part. Really? If he hadn't, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you now. That broke you. That's like this, uh, to this day, is a a cult favorite Mm -hmm. of sorts. It is in England. Yeah, well, I mean, it is a bit here. We have the Anglophile population. They're quiet here, but there's a lot of them. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. It is a very specific thing. Yeah. Uh, American Anglophiles that will just be like, oh, anything, anything English. They're on yeah. PBS, sort of mainlining. Waiting, waiting, they like, are. you know, yeah, for something. You waiting know. for Downton Abbey. Yeah, Downton Abbey. But it used to be, what, upstairs, downstairs, yeah. was it? and then Monty Python. And exactly. there's, yeah, Masterpiece Theater. Anything with English people. Yeah, English. they loved yeah. it. They're like, why can't we be... As together as those people, <laughs> proper and whatnot. But like was was with Nell, so when it came out in England, was it popular? Uh, no, it came and went very, very quickly. And it was only as a result of being on DVD, on video and DVD and students taking it up that it then developed this cult following. But that, I think that guy is interesting because he did a couple movies with him and the other movie was like uh, amazing. Again, a cult favorite, but like, I don't know. I, I think everyone should see how to get ahead in advertising. That, that that thing is a crazy fucking movie, man. Well, it's about a man who grows a talking boil on his neck. It's so good. And, when, it, uh, when it first yeah. starts talking, it's insane. An anti-Thatcherite rant from the director, writer Bruce Robinson. Yep. And do you like that guy? What happened to that guy? Uh, he lives on a farm. He's 72 years old in in on the Welsh border in England. He's out of the I game? S- I see him very regularly. You yep. do? We stay great friends. Yep. I think he's sort of a brilliant guy. Yeah, he is. Did he do a lot of work after How to Get Ahead in Advertising? Uh, he wrote, well, he originally wrote The Killing Fields, which made his name and oh, my God. Nomination. Um, that movie, Sam Watterson, that, yeah. Malkovich, that was a great exactly. movie. Yeah, great movie. I hadn't thought about that movie in a long time. Yeah, yeah. So he wrote that, and he's, he recently published a book, a huge 1,200-page doorstopper called Jack the Ripper. Uh, is it a historical thing or is it yeah, a fictionalization? No, 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 no. He, he believes that he found who the real Jack the Ripper was. And was it uh, was it part of the royal family? Uh, no, it wasn't. Mm. No. I'm thinking that that's a, an, a, a theory, though, wasn't it? Yeah. There are so many theories and nobody's nailed it. And you work with, what were you in Henry and June? I don't I, I remember. I played Anais Nin's husband who had a 12-inch penis. And despite oh. which she went off with Henry Miller instead because he was much more interesting with a, a lesser-sized sh- member. And that was a shaved-head Fred Ward in my recollection? Shaved-head Fred Ward, yeah, because Alec Baldwin was going to play the part. And, yeah. and then he pulled out, I think, two weeks before we started shooting. And Daniel Day-Lewis pulled out of with now. He he was offered it because he he had he had broken America, essentially, because he he played an effete Edwardian in, in yeah, yeah. Room of the View. 
and a gay punk in My Beautiful Laundrette. Right, My Beautiful Laundrette. And they were released on the same day, which was an absolute, you know, just genius from his variety point of view because people couldn't believe it was the same person. Do you know that guy? Yeah, he was opposite absolutely everything Yeah, and chose to do the unbearable lightness of being instead. The unbearable length of this movie? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he was so he chose to do that and so they were scraping around and they found, you know, a guy who'd been in one T V show with Gary Oldman. And so that's how I got to play that part. Yeah. Do Thank you, God. I, do, are you friends with Daniel? I met him on I was on I had a small part in Scorsese's Age of Innocence. The, oh yes. His war novel yeah. and on the first day of shooting I prostrated myself in front of him and I said, Oh Daniel I owe you my entire career and life. And he said, arise, young man. (laughs) In character still. (laughs) He was not in character at that point. And then he was in character from the next day and didn't speak to me for the next three months. And then spoke to me on the last day that I was shooting and came out of his character. So it was an extraordinary experience. But what do you think of people who work that way? Well... Daniel has three Oscars, yeah. so you can't really, you can't really, in all conscience, argue with the man's method. But have you tried to do that? It was um, a, a, your approach is like, no. My approach is the is doesn't do that, and I don't have any Oscars on my shelf because I think that you know at the end of the day you have your own life and you are pretending to be somebody else. That's right, but you, you know, let's, behind. Let, let's not, you know, let, let's not. The Oscars are somewhat of a political ordeal, and you know, I, I mean, don't you know, just talk about it like it's some sort of weird justice system. And I mean, he's a great actor. I'm not going to deny him that, but right. uh, you, you'll get an Oscar <laughs> if you keep working and you live to about ninety. They have yeah. to give you one. Okay, that'll happen. Well, then I've got to live for another 30 years, baby. You can do it. I'll keep trying my breathing. Like, uh-huh. it's, it's weird. You work with these great... You work with Coppola and Scorsese when they decided to do things that were completely different than what they had done before. Exactly. Or you, you know, like, you know, you miss the gritty sort of like, you know, hands-on guy. Yeah. And you, yeah. Age of Innocence, I mean, what was like... That was like a study in table settings. Completely. And But what was your... Did you have a... a I imagine because of, you know, Dracula, you had a bit more to do did you what was it working with Coppola was it something he was like a circus ringmaster and he likes to work in a self-confessed state of chaos where family friends people yeah. dogs music everything is just <laughs> into the mix of it he told me the best way I understood of, of him because we were f- uh, rehearsing at his um, biggest state in the Napa Valley yeah. before we started and I yeah. said he said I can't cook for two people I can only cook for 30 people. And I thought that was exactly the metaphor for how he worked as a director. Yeah. Where Scorsese was the exact opposite. He worked in monastic silence. Hmm. People whispered on the set. And if people whispered a little bit louder than that, he would literally blow a gasket. No kidding. Yeah. So it was very, it was the exact opposite. And I worked one from one director to the next without, I think, a two-week break. So it, it couldn't have been more extreme. And whether that was because of the subject matter of la upper class, you know, Edith Wharton Society, yeah. turn of the Centre in New York, or whether that's how he always is, I, I don't know. But Michael Bauhaus, the late Michael Bauhaus, the cinematographer on Dracula and Age of Innocence, said to me that this is how he always works. Hmm. 
He's got quiet. a lot going on in his quiet mind. Quiet and intense. Well, I, well, you know, with Coppola, I, I think there's like a you know pre-aging and pre-medication Coppola, and it sounds like you got in under the wire. That like, okay. I, I feel that like I think something shifted in his in disposition because if you watch Heart of Darkness, that dark the documentary, yeah, Hearts of Darkness about making Apocalypse, oh, it was clear that you know he was just like, Wah! yeah. It's, it, so you got to experience that. Yeah. And Altman as well towards the end, I guess. With uh, Well, that was what I was going to say. The player, you were great in that. Thank you. Because like, I, I think you have a, a knack for, for um, slightly morally bankrupt characters. Yes. But it, this is true. Yeah, but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but Cynicism that, will out. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But I mean, there's that moment. Uh, that it was a great turn in that movie. And, 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 and one of the, I think, few comedic turns in the player was when, you know, you shift... You know, you start out like you know, an artist, and then you know, yeah. you know at that, when no you come, stars. Yeah, when you come right, yeah. that's right, no yeah. stars. Yeah, and I've got Julia Roberts and Bruce Willis, the complete sellout, complete, just yeah. like boom. Yeah, but hey, what about him as a director? Because that was seemed a little more controlled for him than, than usual. That movie, well, because that movie was scripted, mm-hmm. and so his his what he really added to that was casting everybody who was an extra as a movie actor. Oh really? So that was that was the thing that really was the kick of that so of the, of, of uh, the player. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, but it's a, it's a great movie. Yeah. Do you like it? Yeah, I loved it. I yeah. loved I loved doing it, and because I'd seen I'd seen Nashville twenty seven times when I was a um, theater student, so I thought that I'd never live long enough, or he would live long enough. Yeah. I'd never get the chance to work for him, and I was told when I left drama school I looked too weird to be an actor who could make it. So yeah, um, I never thought that I'd work with. With with him, and so I got three three goes with him, and he was he was very loyal to actors, and he loved them. Yeah. So that was you know you think that would be the norm for movie directors, but um, I don't think it entirely is. And but he certainly he loved people, and he was very loyal. So you did Player Predator and Gosford Park. Oh, Gosford Park. Yeah. That's right. That was sort of a return to form a little bit. Yeah. But- again, completely scripted with improvised bits around it but essentially it was Julian Fellow's script that he had to follow yeah but they had that vibe though like yeah. they, that was one of those oh you played the like the the head, but, uh, head yeah. butler guy right yeah. but that was it had that vibe because you know the difference between you know the the serving class and, and the upper class yeah. like the chatter exactly. but that it was that was the play in that movie right yeah. the, the 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 way humans interacted exactly yeah that was a that was a that was a good Altman movie I'd forgotten that he did that yeah a lot of directors just think like, well, we hired you to be to do what you do, so yeah. what do you want from me? Exactly. Don't <laughs> just, ask. Yeah, just go do what you yeah, so that's, Just don't bump to the furniture. Just get on with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the norm, I would think. I think it is, yeah. Is that, is that, was that uh, uh, disillusioning for you initially? Uh, it was a big surprise. And uh-huh. That's when your theater training comes you know, to the fore, that you know that you've got to know all the stuff in advance and make decisions about it and not not entirely rely that the director is going to be the person who's going to mm. provide you all the answers. Not daddy. No, yeah. No. Not, not the Wizard of Oz, but yeah, I mean, yeah. you pull the curtain back and you see somebody who's not thinking about the acting. But, but well, in, in Henry and Jr. work with Kaufman. Yes. And he, he was like an underappreciated director, I think. I think he was, yeah. I was, think he is. He's still Was he engaged? Alive. He was completely engaged. And he and his late wife, Rose, had, had co-written the screenplay and they were passionate about yeah. Henry Miller and... Uh, they, you know, they'd, they'd lived all their lives in in San Francisco. Yeah, right. So they they had all the sort of liberal arts credentials to to right. take that 
to take that story yeah. on. I thought it was a pretty good movie. I want to talk a little bit about the movie that you made that I, I did not see. Okay. Because it was an autobiographical film, right? Mm-hmm. Wawa? Yeah, and set in Swaziland where all this stuff that I talked to you right at the beginning about. Yeah. And the, the movie opens with... Uh, Miranda Richardson, who played my mother, being yeah. sha- you know shagging a guy that was was my father's best friend. And Gabriel yeah. Byrne played my father, and Emily Watson played my stepmother. So it was, and, and Nicholas Holt played me when I was fourteen years old. Wow. So it was a very cathartic thing to do. It was painful to write, and then an amazingly cathartic and rewarding experience to to direct because <laughs> I was going as a middle aged person in control of. 120 people yeah recreating your life yeah yeah it was an amazing thing of course egocentric in the extreme but um to do it in the actual locations where this stuff happened was really bucking the theory that you can't go back in time and it felt like we literally did go back in time and you're proud of it yeah was it a struggle to do like oh it took took five years and you know the money fell through all the time and yeah uh, we never thought it would ever get released but you know got shown at the Toronto Film Festival and won awards and things so you know that's I'm just amazed that we ever got it made do you do you, do you direct more now I yeah. tried and I've the other two projects that I've had have financially collapsed three weeks before shooting started oh my god so it kind of yeah put a dent in it for a while so I thought well I'll stick to the day job I'm always amazed at people that do that because it really does if like you want to make a movie on an independent level I mean it could take five ten years of your life yeah it's masochism I don't have that many years left so oh, yeah. I started making perfume instead. I know. I, I read that, and I, yeah. I was sort of like, you know, what is that about? Well, there's a lifelong obsession. I fell in mad in love with an American girl called Betsy Clapp, who'd arrived in Swaziland in 1969. I couldn't afford to buy perfume for her, so I made what I thought was going to be, you know, absolute Chanel number no. five out of yeah. gardenia and rose petals, boiled up in sugar water and buried in the garden. And, of course, it was just stink bombs. So it took me another 40 years to professionally make it. <laughs> so I now made it with, you know, lime, marijuana, mandarin. You can buy it in L.A. and you can buy it online. What's it called? It's called Jack, and it's unisex. And this was like, this was not some sort of, like, because I was looking at that, I'm like, would, would a company reach out to Richard Grant? Like, has he, like, got that much traction in that no. world? No, I don't. To no, make a cent? Self-finance and self, you know, the whole thing is. This was an a, obsession. Yeah. It's a one-man brand obsession. That's yeah. insane. <laughs> See, it seems like that, you know, that somewhere in you, you're, you're your father's son. You have a little unrequited love. I do. For, for that girl. <laughs> Clearly, Yes. What happened to Ms. Clapp? I don't know. She left Swaziland a year later. I've never seen sight nor sound of her since. But boy, that that burying that bottle, yeah. it stuck with you. It has certainly done. And how's that? Uh, how's that scent selling? Yes, yeah, done really well. It has. Yeah. Well, that's really uh, well. there. You go. A whole new business. A whole new business. More more d- reliable than trying to make independent movies. That's that's insane. So, all right. Well, the, well, I guess what people have seen you in recently is uh, Jackie. I thought that was a great movie. Oh, thank you. Great movie. Did you enjoy that movie? Yeah, because I thought that uh, Natalie Portman did an extraordinary job. It's sort of like, a, it's kind of a meditation on grief. Yeah, it is. Uh, it was really kind of a, a powerful, interesting movie. Yeah. And I didn't see Logan. I'm not a superhero guy. Was that fun? Uh, it was very testosterized. Yeah. Is that okay. is that a lot for you on a, a set? A crew of 300 people, as opposed to, you know, uh, working with Mariel Heller and all her predominantly female crew on how to you know um, can you ever forgive me which yeah. is the complete opposite of that experience well I, well, I mean it's like I would I would assume that Wolverine is uh, the, the extreme example of alpha yeah I, I, yeah <laughs> a crew you, of 300 men and you know they've all got muscles the size of you know my head and you're the bad guy 
I was a bad guy, one of them. Yeah. yeah. You like that? Um, yeah, it was fine to do. Yeah, and no. and and also I, I have to pay a little uh, attention to, like I'm not a Doctor Who guy, but I imagine there's a lot of people that, you know, uh, they love you for that. <laughs> you did it twice? Yes. No, no, and uh, I did a, they did a radio version of it yeah. at one point. Um, so it was never, I think it was animated with voiceover and stuff so i played the doctor in that and then i played the villain in a christmas special oh of doctor who do you so. find a lot of people know you from that a certain type uh, of person yes yeah, yeah. do you do, you do comic-con and stuff and, i yeah. haven't but i've heard about them uh-huh yeah they isn't doctor who invited isn't that that's that world isn't it yeah uh, yeah yeah and you won't go um i i haven't gone yet i'm mm. sure i will and what is this star wars business Star Wars business is, you know, you read, get sent a generic scene, and you self-tape, and you send it off, and you have no idea what it is. It goes out into the ether, and then two months go by, and your agent calls up, or my agent called up and said, uh, they're sending a car for you to go to Pinewood Studios to meet J.J. Abrams, the director. For what? Star Wars. Right, okay. So you go in there, and he says, so you're going to do the part. You go, what's the part? <laughs> And uh, from then onwards, you sign a confidentiality treatment, <laughs> yeah. and you know you can not mention anything other than that you're in it. Oh, so you don't know the you don't know anything about it publicly? Not at all. No, not at all. <laughs> but apparently, I've been doing it. Oh, good. Yeah, and well, I've been costumed. And is that you know, exciting? In there, it is because it's you go into you know a parallel universe. That's yeah. something that I'd seen when I was 18 years old at drama school in 1977, and suddenly you're in that place where spacey things are going on around you and, and also you're part of the history now yeah. you're i mean it's like it's a it's a, a rarefied kind of you know what i mean to the, be, mark, the cynical part of you know the terror part paranoia part of my brain thinks yeah will i be in the movie when it comes out next christmas or will i be cut out or replaced and that's, see, that's always a possibility that's the problem of the acting thing exactly you but you weren't you, so was doing stand-up star was i just be you know be riffing here <laughs> now for the next two hours <laughs> that's right <laughs> maybe that's it you can still do it man okay. But the new movie, I watched it last night, Can You Ever Forgive Me? And, you know, I've, I've talked to Melissa before. Oh, you have? Yeah, yeah. Right. And, you know, we all know her as a comedian, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, I, it's a, it, this is a serious role it's a, for her. Yeah. And it was, it was a, it's a, a kind of a, an abrasively heartbreaking character. Yeah. And you, I, I, I've not seen this much of you in a long time in a movie. I mean, this is a big role. Uh-huh. And it was, uh, you know, again, a, a sort of a heartbreaking, abrasive character. Yeah. But it was, uh, it was great. I, I really enjoyed the film, and I thought, you know, you're, you captured that particular guy with all his flaws, you know, very uh, perfectly. Well, thank you. But that's yeah. entirely due to the screenplay by Nicole Hofcenter and Jeff Whitty and... Uh, Marielle's direction, and how was working with Melissa, and how was that working with Melissa? She's she's it, very difficult. Oh no! Yeah, she's very very difficult. She's unkind. She's unfriendly. She never knows a line. She's always late, and she has terrible <laughs> breath. It was it was a nightmare, frankly. But I hope you don't publish any of that. We uh, would we, we wouldn't dare put that she, on the podcast. She, she was absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, you know, everything that you'd hope for. She's you know, and I know this sounds pretentious, but I don't. I'm what I mean. I mean it very very sincerely. She's incredibly, as you will know, sitting across from her. Yeah, she's emotionally present. Oh yeah, she's like blotting paper. You yeah. say something to her, and you see the effect. Right. There's no. There's no subterfuge. There's no calculation or whatever. Yeah. You, you just feel that you're getting the the genuine person. I think that is why people love her so inordinately. Yeah. And it's interesting to see her do uh, such a difficult and, curmudgeon. Yeah. And, and, and angry. Yeah. Uh, She's an angry woman. 
yeah, I just thought the whole thing was was played really nicely. That you know that the the center, like the story itself, being a true story about the you know this desperation that leads to this fairly you know gifted writer doing these forgeries. Yeah. And you your your relationship with her as her partner kind of hap, it hap, haphazard happens out of nowhere. Yeah, because you meet in this sad, lonely kind of daytime gay bar. Yeah, but I what I thought was interesting out is that. The focus never it didn't shift to the sexuality of the thing. I no. mean it was there, but it was really about the the relationship with these two sort of broken, you know, desperate people yeah. that were doing what was necessary and, and also exciting to sort of live. Yeah, he happens to be gay, she happens to be uh, lesbian, and it doesn't seem to be of any real it's not ever made into an issue movie in that way. And I thought that was a great strength to it. Yeah, it was just is. Yeah. It, it wasn't avoided, obviously. No, absolutely not. I mean, the the scene towards the end, where like that moment where she says, watch your house. I'm watching the movie going like, no, you can't let that guy. What, what are you thinking is going to happen? Yeah. Oh, I was so sad when she comes home. Yeah. That, it's so funny. I don't want to talk about it because that's actually a spoiler in that movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't want to. You watch your apartment and she comes home. It's a very sad moment. But, but oddly, you, you know, that... As as difficult as she was, and you know, as somewhat contemptible as your character is, uh, you do empathize. I mean, you, you there, you do at the end, you know, want them to be okay. Yeah, and you know? I think that what what Marielle Heller really did as a director was she she was uncompromising about dealing with the loneliness and desperation of these people. That, yes, you know, it's like just muddling through life and. You know, like what John Lennon famously said just before he was murdered, that yeah. life is what happens in between your plans. And this is exactly what happens to these two people. Yeah. And the, in, in the, the sort of the desperation and the loneliness and you're sort of a hustler. Yeah. You know, and she is just, uh, you know, uh, desperate and and um, bitter. Yeah. And it, it was like, I, I think that, you know, oddly, a lot of people can relate to that. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. Uh, what's amazing people. about Melissa is that she she just innately mines the the inherent comedy of what it is fascinating is in her, that you know she gets laughs out of things you think wow on paper is that funny yeah but she makes it because it's you know it's very very true it's her nature yeah like she can't like yeah because you, you and now at this point in, in culture when you see her you're kind of like it's gonna she's gonna make yeah. it but she doesn't really do it that way no she does it very much in character. And and it is a hard character, and and I thought that the 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 surrounding actors were were, were kind of great as well, mm-hmm. like that woman who that who owned the bookstore, Dolly Wells, yeah. Wow, man, and that was shot really smartly, you you, you know, in the sense that when she's sitting there, you can't really see how tall she is or how old she is, or yeah. you know, or you know what where she's coming from. But then when you know they're out, it's like a whole different thing. And she played the vulnerability of that character; it was like devastating. Yeah, yeah. But the story is a true story. Now, when it's it, uh, if people don't know, it's about a, a woman who had written successfully a couple of biographies and been on the bestseller list, but could not really make her own way writing about herself. And she was obsessed with writing about Fanny Bryce, and then somehow or another falls into forging uh, letters of uh, famous writers and selling them. Right? Yeah, in order to pay her rent. In order just just to survive. Yeah. So it's a kind of act of literary ventriloquism. Yeah. And she was successful at it because she could find the voice of these people and yeah. make it convincing. I mean, she she convinced experts that sh- that these were letters, unknown letters, by Dorothy Parker, Lillian Hellman, Noel Coward, you know, great writers in yeah. her own right. And yeah. she managed to clone herself into 
being who they were. Her name was Lee Shapiro. What was Lee her? Israel. Lee Israel. Yeah. Now, and, and this all happened to her. Now, when you got the script, was it offered to you or did you have to audition for it? Or did you, you know, when you read the material, were you like, oh, this is a great story? I got called by an agent who said, you have 24 hours to read the script and made a, make a decision. Start shooting in a month's time in, in what, two months' time in Manhattan, yeah. January, two years ago. And I said... Who has dropped out or who has died? <laughs> and she said, that is not what you should be asking yourself or are you concerning with. Yeah. Do you want to do this? Or not? I said, well, who's playing the Israel? I said, Melissa McCarthy. And I thought, well, you, you read that. Yeah, and yeah. As I'd seen everything she'd done, I knew that it was just a gift of a part and a gift of a role. So yeah. we jumped at it. Those are the questions you shouldn't be asking, except it's happened to you twice, three times. Yeah. It's a natural... Yeah. Because I know it's so, so fucked up about show business. It's yeah. sort of like you get offered these things. It's like you have 10 minutes. Yeah. It's like, how did it get to the? How, why, yeah. how did it get to that? To 10 minutes. How yeah. am I? Yeah. <laughs> did you find out anything to make it bad for you? Uh, no, I didn't. Well, that's and good. I, and I try to stick with the thing of not asking who or what or how, it, who would turn it down or pulled out or whatever, because it's not good. You know, if you're given to paranoia, which I am, um, that's, not the, that's not the way to go. But what do you do when that happens? I mean, if you found out, have you found out before you, took, you started acting and then you just compare yourself to that person? Or yeah, you, I think you do. Yeah, but you even do that. Do you I mean, do it's like people, you know, it's like trying to ask what somebody was like, the person that, the, who you're with now, yeah. that they were stooping before. It's, you know, you may have enormous curiosity to find out about them, yeah. but it's best not to know and certainly not see a photograph of them. Uh, yeah. It, because that, you're only going to feel probably inadequate. I think. Yeah, I, I think that diminishes a little bit with age when you yeah. get a little bit of confidence. It's yeah. sort of like, all right, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, yeah, but you know about confidence. It just doesn't, you know, unfortunately, it's that sort of like juggling with jelly and water. It doesn't It doesn't hold for long. It's the me. worst. Yeah. It's the worst. You feel so great on one day and then somebody just comes up and sideswipes you and you're just you're like, you know, flattened all over again. Yeah, or when you have to show up to do the work and you you, you feel that heaviness, and yeah. the heavy-hearted thing. Yeah. We're like, I'm not, yeah. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. Yeah, for that. I can't go out the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get that still? Oh, yeah. That never goes away. I just accept that that's how it is. But do you find that like right when you start doing what you're doing that it, it kind of, you, yeah, you, you're professional? Yeah, the terror is enormous. Yeah. yeah. But you, does it diminish when you engage? Once you start, because, yeah. I mean, in this, in this situation, in this movie, um, I got to New York on a Wednesday, and I said, are we, I think there was a plan that we were going to rehearse before we started shooting on the Monday. Yeah. And then I was told, you know, Melissa had been making, I know, 75 movies in four concerts or whatever she was doing, writing and publishing three books and <laughs> launching a fashion line. She turned up on the Friday, and I begged Mariel Heller, I said, can we please just have half an hour, 10 minutes, anything, just so we meet, so it was not on the first day having to play these people that clearly oh, had this really? relationship. Oh, really? So it turns out that Melissa felt the same way, and you know we spent the whole morning going through the script and having lunch together and talking. And you know, as you know from the Malcolm Gladwell, you know, um, Blink book essays that you make a decision about another human being whether you're going to get on with them or not instinctively within you know 15 nanoseconds. Is that true? Is. Yeah, I think so. So, well, you have a you have a very sort of animal instinct instinctive right, response right, right. to somebody. Yeah, and we got on right from the get-go and I think that that was a godsend because it then meant that when we started work on the m Monday actual shooting I felt like I I I I sort of innately knew something about her. Yeah, right. In a yeah. way that if we'd met on the first day, I, my nerves would have been so shredded with jet lag and not sleeping for 72 hours trying to get through the wing thing. Oh, am I going to be fired? You know, will Mr. Right, McCarthy right. hate my guts or whatever? So right. we'd gone through that. And um, we all found that we, we had the same 
idea about what this movie could and should be. Oh, that's great. And yeah. I, you, I would think that you would have to be a real tremendous asshole for Melissa McCarthy not to like you. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> You Believe know, me, do not be seemed, fooled. She seems so, you know, embracing. You know, you, you know, she is. And it was nice to see Jane Curtin too, huh? Yeah, gosh, so good to see she's her, so, and so good. Yeah, yeah, I, I love when that happens. Uncompromising and just straight down the line, being absolute. Yeah, you know, it's great. A there gorgon. was. Yeah, and there was a there was a sort of a nice comedic balance to the thing a little bit subtly, yeah. you know. And I like when Melissa McCarthy, I guess her husband, got cast as that <laughs> yeah. the, the scumbag guy. You know the you know the guy who's like you know shady. Yeah, yeah. One of the, book, one of the autograph book booksellers. Yeah, yeah. But you know she essentially got the part by sleeping with him, oh, by right. being a husband because he was cast in the former incarnation of the movie. Oh, really? And then when that cast and director went down, he was still attached to it, and Melissa then read it, and she obviously was a fan of Nicole Hofstadter's writing. And so then Melissa got, you know, very keen on this project and kept saying, you know, this is a great character and this should should get made. So she happened to be, you know, married to the guy that was cast. Ah. So he was, the, he was the common denominator. Yeah. They yeah. make their own movies, those two. They do. So Lee Israel is no longer with us? No, she died uh, 2014. Did she die, you know, happier or with more money? Or uh, what do you know? There was a guy that was hanging around the Julius Bar, which is the oldest gay bar in Manhattan, yeah. where we were sh- shooting, where uh, Lee Israel parked herself regularly yeah. with headphones on and a, um, a Walkman cassette to shut the world out, but not to be harassed by people. And a guy came up to uh, – Melissa went up to this guy who was hanging around a lot and said, you know, it's, I, I, saw, I don't know who you are. Are you on the crew or whatever? Yeah. He said, no, no, no. I was a friend of Lee's. And he said, it's very uncanny for me to be seeing you as Lee sitting yeah. there because I used to sit next to her. Uh-huh. And he, she said to him, do you think Lee would have been happy with what we're doing? And his response was, happy was not really anything that Lee did. <laughs> so, you know, I think that, you know, oh, that's the guy great. that knew her, that got, who's the producer, David, yeah. um, who encouraged Lee to write this story eventually about about her FBI forging yeah. um, life. Yeah. Um, he thought that she would have been incredibly thrilled to have this spotlight on her work and her life. Uh huh. So did Melissa get her? I mean, like, I mean, was yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You read the book and you go, she's absolutely nailed who this person is. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, I, I enjoyed the movie. And it oh, was great you. talking to you. Uh, good luck with the rest of the junket. Thank you very much. And um, yeah, I look forward to seeing you in movies always. Thank you. That's it. That was great. I, you know, I had no idea what to expect. He wanted to know a bit about me. I gave it to him, and then he told me about him, and it was an interesting story. It was unique, and I enjoyed his company. He's a very sweet guy and um, great actor. Loved it. Hey, have a good weekend. Maybe I'll see you at the thing. And if not, you know, have, good, have a good time at that thing you're doing. Hey, good luck with the thing that you got going. Hope that works out. Don't worry about it. It'll be good. It'll be good. It'll be good. I will play some simple, redundant guitar now.
Boomer lives.